This is one of my favorite passages to talk about. Because I think this issue that we're going to look at tonight, the issue of idolatry, is one of the most important things you could come to understand to understand not only what it means to be a Christian, but how to live as a Christian, how to grow as a Christian. I also think that this topic of idolatry will help you understand the world you live in. It'll help you understand um, pretty much everybody that you know, as well as yourself. It'll help you understand so much about why the world is the way it is, the things that bother you, the things that you really like are connected to the issue of idolatry and worship. Worship is really central to who we are as human beings. That's one of the fundamental convictions of Christianity, is that you are not just a thinking being or a feeling being. You are fundamentally a worshiping being, that you were made to worship. And it's inevitable that you will worship something. This is at the heart of what the Bible has to say about what it means to be human, about what is wrong with the world, and about how healing and restoration will come. It all centers around this idea of worship. John Calvin, one of his most famous phrases, he said that the human heart is like an idol factory, that we are continually um, coming up with things to put our hope and our trust in, that we are constantly finding things beautiful that really aren't things that we should putting our hope, we should be putting our hope and trust in. Worship is at the heart of who we are and the way we live. Now, I, I've been reading actually an interesting book that tries to get at this topic, and I want to share a little bit of, uh, of it from you. I don't normally read you know, sort of sections from a book, and it may be difficult, but I think it's rather humorous and intriguing, so I'm going to, I'm going to give it a go to start out tonight. Um, it's a book by a philosophy professor at Calvin College. had the opportunity to hear him give a seminar recently. The book is called Desiring the Kingdom, Worship, Worldview, and Cultural Formation. It's by a guy, James K.A. Smith. And what he's contending in this book is that we are surrounded by liturgies and by worship and by visions of the good life. All around you are visions and evangelists for the good life, competing visions and evangelists for the good life that are shaping and molding your desires. And one of the problems with the way Christianity is practiced, he's arguing in this book, is we tend to only talk to people about what they should think. But but probably 80% of why you do what you do is not because of your cognition and your thinking. It has much more to do with your desires. And often in Christianity, we never really want to talk about that or think about that, or think about how your desires are being shaped. And what he's saying here is it's key to the education of children. It's key to worship to understand how our desires are being shaped. And so he gives this illustration to try to, try to explain how you are being bombarded and you are participating in worship all the time. Not just in church, not just when you come to RUF, all the time. And so he gives this example. He says, I want to invite you for a tour of one of the most important religious sites in our metropolitan area. It's the kind of place that maybe, you don't have this, so don't be looking for it. It's the kind of place that may be quite familiar to many of you. My guess is that probably most of you visited this site sometime in the last month. But he says, my task here is to actually try to make this place strange, to get you to see it with fresh eyes by describing it as a place of worship, even though you generally don't think of it as a place of worship. So he says, as we're still off at a distance, I want you to notice the sheer popularity of the site so indicated or as indicated by the colorful sea of parking that surrounds the building. The site is throbbing with pilgrims every day of the week as thousands and thousands make the pilgrimage. In order to provide a hospitable environment and absorb the daily influx of the faithful, the site provides an oasis of parking. Religious sites of this kind almost inevitably emerge on the suburban edges of cities. Their areas planned around the automobile and generally suspicious of pedestrians. 
But the sacred building even provides a sanctuary from the incessant culture of automobility as some pilgrims make their way to this sanctuary, especially in the winter, just for a space to walk. So we've now made our way into the glistening sea of black and color, and we found a haven for our vehicle, still quite a distance from the sanctuary. However, already the hospitality of this community extends itself. Waiting for us is a train-like cart to convey our family across the parking lot. Other pilgrims board the conveyance, and we begin to wend our way toward the building that sprawls in both directions and seems to be rising from the horizon, a dazzling array of glass and concrete with recognizable ornamentation. Indeed, because this particular religious site is part of an international, yea, a Catholic network of religious communities, the architecture of the building has a recognizable code that makes us feel at home in any city. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar texts and symbols on the exterior walls help foreign faithful to quickly and easily identify what's inside. And the sprawling layout of the building is anchored by large pavilions or sanctuaries akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. Our train ride has brought us to one of several grandiose entries to the building, channeling us through a colonnade of chosen, sorry, chromed arches to the towering glass face with doors lining its base. As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers, as well as providing a bit of a decompression space for the regular faithful to enter in to the spirit of the space. For the seeker, there's a large map, a kind of worship aid to give the novice an orientation to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims. One can readily recognize the regulars, the faithful, who enter the space with a sense of achieved familiarity, who know the rhythms by heart because of habit-forming repetition, and they don't need the map, the worship aid. From the narthex entry... Uh, one is invited to lose oneself in this space, which channels the pilgrim into a labyrinth of octagons and circles, inviting a wandering that seems to escape from the driven, goal-oriented ways we inhabit in the outside world. The pilgrim is also invited to escape from the mundane ticking and counting of clock time and to inhabit a space governed by a different time, one almost timeless, with few windows and a curious Baroque manipulation of light It almost seems as if the sun stands still in here. We lose consciousness of times passing and so lose ourselves in the rituals for which we've come. He goes on. The layout of this temple has architectural echoes that hark back to medieval cathedrals, mammoth religious spaces that can absorb all kinds of different religious activities all at one time. Do you understand in medieval cathedrals, often the worship went took place in the little side chapel spaces all at the same time. It wasn't generally like everybody just sat in church. There was private worship going on all around. And so it is in this modern day religious space that he's describing. One might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. As we wander the labyrinth in contemplation preparing to enter one of the chapels, we'll be struck by the rich iconography, is that how you say it? That lines the walls and interior spaces. Unlike the flattened descriptions of saints that one might find in stained glass windows, here is an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires us to be imitators of these exemplars. These statues and icons embody for us concrete images of the good life. Here is a religious proclamation that does not traffic in abstracted ideals or rules or doctrines but rather offers to the imagination pictures and statues and moving images. While other religions are promising salvation through the thin, dry media of books and messages, this new global religion is offering embodied pictures of the redeemed that invite us to imagine ourselves in their shoes, sometimes quite literally, to imagine ourselves otherwise than we are, and thus to willingly submit to the disciplines that produce the saints evoked in the icons. And then he talks about how what we have here in this sanctuary 
This temple, like countless others now emerging in our world, offers a rich, embodied, visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires and compels us to come not with dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in this envisioned good life. And then he says that we come now to enter into one of the chapels to worship. He says, as we pause to reflect, we're invited to consider what's happening within one particular chapel. We're invited to enter into the act of worship more properly, invited to actually taste and see. We are greeted by a welcoming acolyte who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own terms. Sometimes we enter cautiously, curiously, tentatively making our way through this labyrinth within the labyrinth, having a vague sense of need, but unsure of how it will be fulfilled. And so we are open to surprise, to that moment when the Spirit leads us to an experience we couldn't have anticipated. Having a sense of our need, we come looking, not sure for what, but expectant, knowing that what we need must be here. And then we hit upon it, combing through the racks, We find that experience and offering that will provide fulfillment. At other times, our worship is intentional, directed, and resolute. We have come prepared for just this moment, knowing exactly why we're here in search of exactly what we need. But in either case, after time spent focused and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newly found holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar, which is the consummation of worship. While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. And this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion. When invited to worship here, we are not only invited to give, we are also invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just good feelings or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were, that are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, but in return receive something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints and the season. Released by the priests with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouement. Not necessarily to leave, because our awareness of time has been muted, but rather to continue contemplation and be invited into another chapel. Who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? You know what he's describing, of course? The shopping mall. You think of the shopping mall as a place where worship takes place where your desires are molded and shaped? Do you think of purchasing items as a sort of communion, where you get to leave with something tangible that promises to make you and your life different? If you don't understand that, if we don't see it that way, then what we're going to talk about tonight may seem very ethereal and very abstract and not at all related to the life that you actually live. But I want to tell you guys that you are involved in worship all the time. You are involved in chasing after images and visions of the good life. And particularly in a consumer culture, the shortest and most direct route to the good life that we all long for is by buying stuff. It's also one of the greatest uh, ways that we can distinguish ourselves in a world of so much anonymity. It really is. I remember seeing an article, uh, actually it was an ad in Rolling Stone magazine about 10 years ago, but I still think it's true today. It's a two-page spread of this really cool guy on a skateboard. And just this text, clothes are your armor. Clothes are your armor. Why do you wear what you wear? Why do you buy what you buy? It's not just because you need it. It's connected to what you worship. So when Isaiah here in chapter 44 talks about idolatry, it would be absolutely fatal to us if we think that he's just talking about people who carve little statues, set them up on their mantle, and pray to them. 
Now, there are people that do that in our world. There have been for millennia. There were in Isaiah's day. But the issue of idolatry is so much deeper and broader than just that kind of worship. And I think often we think that it's far from us because we don't do that sort of stuff. I remember reading, watching the movie Gladiator. You guys have seen Gladiator? And there's one scene you know, where you know, before he's going to go battle, he, he literally like, takes out his little gods and sets them out and prays to them. And you look at that and you're like, how bizarre, how absurd is that? But it's no more absurd than the kinds of things that we trust in. Like our ability to get people to like us. Really, you think that that will provide the kind of life and security and stability that you were made for? No. Well, let's see what God has to say about idolatry. Worship, you see, molds us, shapes us. It's always present with us. We are in a worship war. And what I want you to see in this passage is that God does not just sit back and watch this war for our souls take place. He comes to do battle for his glory and for our good. He comes to do battle against our idols. And he basically does battle with a two-pronged attack. He exposes how absurd our idols are and how ineffective they are. And then he reveals himself as what we really need and what we're trying to get from our idols. He reveals in the gospel we already have what we're trying to get from our idols. And so then he calls us to repent and return to him. Let's look at this passage. Isaiah 44, start at verse 6, is one of the clearest places in the Bible to see this at work. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. This is one of the principal ways that God says this proves that I'm God and not the idols, because the idols cannot prophesy about the future. This is one of the reasons why, if you've been told in a Bible class that there are two Isaiahs, that there was sort of an Isaiah that wrote the first half of the book, and then another Isaiah wrote the second half, and somehow over time they got shoved together, you can't make sense of this passage. Because Isaiah 44, and likewise, many places in the second half of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah through, God through Isaiah says very specifically Here's how you know that I'm the true God is I have predicted what you're experiencing. And yet you will search in vain in the second half of the book of Isaiah for any of those predictions. All those predictions are in the first half. And so do you see that if it isn't the same Isaiah, the whole logic of the second half of the book falls apart. God keeps appealing to the first half of the book and the predictions because he's writing this now to people who are in exile the thing that they never dreamed of was going to happen, the thing that so many other prophets had told them, don't worry about it, that Isaiah is off his rocker, it's not going to happen, but it has happened. And now God is saying, I told you this was going to happen. Not so that I could say, I told you so. No, so that I could say, believe me, I am the true God. I am the one who told you this before it happened, something you never would have believed would have happened. I am the true God. And he says here in verse 8, Do not tremble, again speaking to these exiles, Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And you can be sure that if the omniscient, all-knowing God knows of no other rock, there is no other rock. In vain you will search for another rock or another God because the all-knowing, omniscient God knows of no other rock, no other place where you can find stability, no other place where you can rest and be secure and safe. And then he goes on to to throw scorn on the idols. Verse 9, all who make idols are nothing and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. And now he gets so sarcastic here. I, 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 I hate Christians that think that sarcasm has no place um, in Christian sort of discussion. And I've known some of those people. Um, this is full of sarcasm. 
Because worshiping idols is absurd, and it needs to be exposed as ridiculous. And so this is what he does. Listen, this picture is beautiful. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats its fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god. His idol. He bows down to it and worship. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Let's pray together. O Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that we find ourselves in this picture. But we thank you, Lord, that we also find in this text your commitment to redeem and your invitation to return and your command to sing. And we pray, Lord, that as we go through this text now tonight, that you would lead us to repentance, that we would heed your invitation to return to you, and that we would sing for joy because you are the God who rescues us when we can't save ourselves, when we can't even see or say that the thing in our right hand is a lie. So we pray now, through the foolishness of preaching, come do battle with our idols and help us to trust you more thoroughly and fully tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Let me just summarize what I said in the intro and then show you how this text connects to this. Everything is about worship. You are an incurably religious being and you're worshiping all the time. Not just at church, not just when you sing or you pray. Worship is going around all the time. And worship... What we gather together as Christians to do in worship is really about warfare and about battle. Worship is always going on, and God is jealous for the people he has made, for their heart, and for their love. It's what he made you for, and he is not content to let you give your love to lesser things. And so he comes to do battle. This is the good news of the gospel, that God is a jealous God who comes and does battle. And in this passage, we see the way that he does battle. He comes and first he exposes 
the futility and the ridiculousness of worshiping anything other than God. But he doesn't stop there. Because if he stopped there, we would all walk out of here in shame, feeling like complete fools. And we are fools. But we are well-loved fools who have a God who pursues us and who reveals himself as the one who, in spite of our giving our lives and our hearts away, still comes after us and says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Don't you realize, God says, that what you are trying to get from your idol, whether it's hope, whether it's a calming or a quieting of all the guilty fears that rage in your head, Whatever it is that you're trying to get from your idols, you already have it in the gospel. And therefore, he calls us first to remember. He doesn't say, you need to learn something new. What he says is, you need to remember what you have and who I am. And when you remember, you need to return to me. Return to me because I've already redeemed you. Don't return to me with your tail between your legs, hoping to prove to me that you're really so sorry so that maybe I'll cut you a break. No, return to me because I have redeemed you. The invitation is based on the fact that he has already opened the way. And then he says, sing about it. Let the reality of what I've done sink into your heart and make you Somebody who can't shut up about my goodness. Number one, it'll help you remember sort of this vicious cycle. But it also is the way you're to be my witnesses to the world. So let's, let's see how this comes out. Look how God begins the fight. He begins the fight in verse 6 by revealing who he is. See some of these things. He's our king and redeemer. What a glorious combination. Remember always that your Savior is sovereign. God, the God of the Bible, the true God, the only God there is, is not eternally frustrated that he can't get human beings to worship him. He is not powerless. He is not impotently knocking on the door of your heart, hoping that you'll give him a break and open that door for him. No, the gospel is that God did you the ultimate favor. It's not, why don't you do God a favor and pray a prayer so that he will not feel so insecure about this plan of salvation that he's offered that nobody seems to want to take him up on. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the Savior is sovereign. He's your king. He's your redeemer. The Lord is sovereign and he's a Savior. What a glorious combination. Not only that, he says, I am the first and the last says that in verse 6, I am the first and I am the last. That means before anything began, I was there. And before anything, after the end of all things, I will be there. The first and the last. He does not derive his life or his power from you. This is not John Locke applied to religion, where the, you know, the governed give power to the governor. The gospel is not like that in any sort of way. God is not dependent upon you to be who he is. He is whether you worship him or not. You are either out of step with the nature of the reality of the universe or you are connected to it and living in line with it. But you don't make God anything. You don't make him who he is. He's not a projection of your imagination. The only thing that's a projection of our imagination are idols. Now, this is true, what Freud has said, that often we do project onto things, God. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. This is not where Christianity came from. If you actually look at what the Bible says about who God is, he is not the kind of God you would invent because you feel afraid. He's the kind of God who's more frightening than anything in this world. He's not the kind of God that you would wish exists. As a matter of fact, when people meet him, they generally feel like they're coming apart at the seams. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6? When Isaiah sees a vision of God, high and holy and lifted up, he says, I'm basically, I'm a man undone. Literally, I'm coming apart. I'm dissolving in your presence. This is not the kind of, you know, sort of totemistic idea like Freud says, where you basically sort of make an animal out to be bigger than it really is so that you can feel safe in this scary world. No, the scariest thing in our world is the sovereign God who you've offended. But that's not the only truth about the God of the Bible. He's the God who's been offended, who has taken it upon himself to deal with that offense. 
But this is the God that we have. He is the first and the last. He does not derive his power from anyone, which is not what you could say about the idols, as, as, as I describe, Isaiah describes them. How ridiculous is it to put your hope in something made by human beings who are finite and weak and powerless? That's part of the absurdity of idolatry. Is it because we are fearful and afraid? We look for things that we think will give us power and keep us safe. They end up making us more fearful and more afraid. But we'll talk about that here in a minute. He also is not afraid to lay down the gauntlet and challenge the idols and say, if you think you're so good, then tell me what's happened before the beginning of time. Tell me, have you ever cared for a people like I have? And this is always a good question to ask your idols. What have you done for me lately? How well have you cared for me? How well have you cared for me? What have you really helped me to do? What benefit or value have you really brought to my life? Then he goes on in verse 9 to exposing the emptiness and the absurdity of idolatry. And I hope what you're going to understand as we go through this passage, God is laying out a pattern for you as well to say, this is what I should be doing. I should be thinking and remembering who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. I should be looking at my idols and I should be throwing scorn upon them. Saying, this really can't get me what I want. Look at how he does it here in Isaiah. In verse 9, he exposes the emptiness of idolatry. He says, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Now, if you look down, actually, farther here, verse 18, it's interesting. He picks up this idea about blindness. It says, they know nothing, they understand nothing, their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. But in, in verse 18, the Hebrew is ambiguous. Who is Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about the idols? Or is he talking about the people who worship idols? And the answer is both. Here's one of the things about, about idolatry. We become like what we worship. And if the idols are blind and cannot see, how can they see? They don't have eyes. But those who trust in them soon become blind as well. And I'm going to talk about why that is. The, the way that idolatry works is it blinds us and it binds us. Idols are lies. They're lies. And they generate even more lies. I'll give you an example. If what you're putting your hope in is your popularity, then all of a sudden... Well, not all of a sudden, but what, what will develop is a whole bunch of lies around that lie. The first lie is that popularity is sufficient for the hole in your soul. That's a lie. That then other lies start to, to start to develop all around it to keep you from understanding that that God is a lie. You begin to believe lies like, I need this person to like me. Or, I can get this person to like me. I know how, and I'm sufficient for this. Or, if I get them to like me, they'll continue to like me. These are all lies. And the more you put your hope in popularity, the more fearful you become that popularity won't last that it won't actually give you this taste of transcendence that you're made for and that you're longing for. But it's so hard to see it because it's not just popularity will save me. You don't think of it that way. It's all those other little lies that you see more, more close at hand that keep you even from seeing that the thing in your right hand, and you know, in the Bible, the right hand is the source of your power. The right hand, I guess it's not, the Bible's not for left-handers, sorry. <laughs> the Bible's for right-handed people. Right hand is the source of power in the Bible. And so it's the idea is what you consider your power that you're holding in your right hand, what you're counting on is a lie and you can't even see it. You're blind. Idols are nothing, but you don't think of them that way because they blind you. Not only that, he goes on and he talks about how Idol, idolatry is absurd. And, and the sarcasm here is just so powerful, right? I mean, how absurd is it 
to look to like a little statue that you made with your own hands and worship it. How absurd is it to take half of this wood, roast your meat over it and say, ah, I am warm and I've eaten my fill. And then take the other rest of the wood that's left over, carve an idol and say, you are my God, save me. It's absurd. You should laugh at that when you see it. But it's equally absurd the kinds of things that we put our hope and our trust in. I remember uh, Dan Allender, one of his books, talks about why is it that if you, if you can imagine yourself out on a date, you're on a first date with somebody, and as you are, you know, as, as I probably would do, um, you take a, a, your glass of water, you put it up to your lips, and it dribbles down the front of your shirt. And he says, you'll be mortified. Why? It's not a sin. It's not. You can search the Bible, and you will not find that that's a sin. So why, does it fe- why do you feel naked and exposed? Because what's been exposed is the insufficiency of one of your idols, which is I can project an image of coolness, that I've got it together, that I'm a, that I'm a good guy, that I'm worthy to be trusted. No, you can't even take a drink of water without dribbling it down your shirt, right? And so you're going to stake your whole being on your ability to project an image and take care of yourself. Do you, right? And if somebody points that out to you, you'll forever be insecure about it. And you're probably more likely to dribble water down your shirt, right? Idolatry is absurd. The things that we put our hope in are absurd. And it's good for God to expose it. It's painful sometimes. It's probably painful all the time because you feel like a fool. But it's part of the medicine that God uses to bring healing to our life is to say, you know what? I remember Jack Miller, a sort of, sort of mentor of mine from a distance, I guess. Um, he's dead now. But he used to say, you have to be able to laugh at your sin. Because while your sin is offensive to God, it's also ridiculous in the true sense of the word. You have to be able at times to say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? To think that I could bring fulfillment into my life by getting an A in this class. What was I thinking? It's ridiculous. It's stupid. I'm stupid. I'm a fool. To think that. Thank you, God, for being patient and loving sinners and fools. Because I'm one. Right? You, you have to realize that not only are, 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 are all of us sinners, we're also foolish and ridiculous. And we put our hope in absurd things. And it's good for you, and it's good for you if you're a friend of somebody to point that out at times. To say, you know, I don't really think that's going to get you what you think it's going to get you. It's not working. And it seems that the more... It's not working. The more desperate you come and the more you invest into it, hoping that it's going to produce the result because you've basically sold yourself to it and now you're no, there's no turning back because to turn back would be to admit that you were a fool. And of course, one of the chief idols in your life is to try to make everybody believe that you're not a fool. Let me just help you. You're a fool. You're a fool, okay? Everybody knows it. I know it. There's one thing I know when I sit down with somebody for a cup of coffee is that you're a fool and so am I. That you're worshiping something that does not deserve your worship. And you will be better off if that's pointed out and you admit you're a fool and you return to the God who is worthy of your worship. So, God exposes the emptiness and the absurdity of idolatry. And he he explains to us, listen, you're up against something really big here. Because idols bind us and blind us. Look at this. I love verse 20. It's one of my favorite verses in this whole passage. He feeds on ashes. Who feeds on ashes? The one who worships idols. Can you think of a better image for eating and never being satisfied? Has anybody ever eaten ashes? I mean, Survivor Man, sometimes they do. I've seen him, you know. You guys watch Survivor Man or the, you know, or um, who's the guy on Man vs. Wild? Yeah, bear. Like, I've seen him eat charcoal sometimes, right? If he thinks he's eating something that may um, make him sick or if he's got a parasite or something, he'll eat charcoal because it'll help soak up some of the poison or the toxins and whatever he's eating. But most people don't eat uh, ashes, you know? And if you do eat ashes, it doesn't fill you up, right? That's the imagery here of eating and eating and eating and never being satisfied because there's no substance to it at all. That's what it's like to worship idols. He feeds on ashes, 
Isaiah says, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself. Notice it doesn't say he will not, though that's true. But what's important is it says he cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? And why can't he say it? Why can't he say it? Because here's the thing. Your idols are really sort of a one-step removed way of trusting in yourself. And you can't let go of the things that you're counting on, no matter how many times they fail you and let you down, no matter how miserable they make you, you can't let go of those things unless you've got something else to grab hold of that seems more solid and more secure. And so this is one of the most important things for you to understand about idolatry. The heart of your problem and all your problems is worship. But it's also the manner of your healing. Worship involves a transfer of trust. It involves having your eyes opened to see God as more beautiful and believable than what it is you're trying to trust in. There's a man named Thomas Chalmers who preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. My Microsoft Word spell checker doesn't like expulsive, but it's a great word and there's no better word for it. Expulsive, it means there's a power that comes in and when it comes in, it drives out something else. What he says is basically you can't stop worshiping. You can't just say, well, I'm going to quit caring what people think about me. You can't do it. Why can't you do it? Because you were made to bask in the approval of another. Your heart is hardwired to care what people think about you. Why? Because God made you to drink in his approval and have it be satisfying to your soul. And if you're not hearing it from him, you're going to try to hear it from somebody else. And you can't just say to your heart, heart, stop caring about that. The only thing that can help you in this ultimate catch-22, is if God speaks into your heart, into your life, and says, I think you're beautiful. Not because of what you've done, but because of what my son Jesus did. His life and his death, and I give you credit for, makes you beautiful. And if that begins to actually get into your heart and your soul, then you can look at, this, at the approval of others and say, you know, it's not bad, the approval of others. It's not. But it sure doesn't fill me up. And I don't need it to fill me up. Because the God of the universe thinks I'm amazing. The God of the universe thinks I'm amazing. Why do I need this? I mean, it might be nice, but I don't need it. And therefore, it doesn't devastate me when I don't have it. The way, the way I think about it is, you know, if you've ever been on the rebound or you've been in a relationship or you've had a crush on somebody, you never really get over that person until a new love comes along. And that's what the gospel is all about, about God setting himself to win your heart by revealing who he is and what he's done and saying, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. And that's where he goes next. He doesn't just say, quit being an idolater. He doesn't just say, quit it. I know a lot of Christians and a lot of Christian churches say, here's all the bad stuff you're doing, now you need to quit it. And if that's your framework, then the message that I'm preaching here tonight will kill you. Because what I'm saying is, you don't just do bad things, you worship the wrong things, and you can't change. So what I've just done is I've said, it's not just that you can't reform your behavior, you worship the wrong things, and you can't even see that they're lies. And you can't save yourself. But the good news of the gospel is that God takes it upon himself to save you. And look at verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. Those names are significant, you know. Jacob was a scoundrel. And when God addresses his people as Jacob, he's saying, this is who you are. This is who you were. You had no righteousness, no beauty, no goodness in you at all. You are a scoundrel and a manipulator. But you are my servant, O Israel. Israel is the name that Jacob got when he met with God and he wrestled with God and God touched him and changed him forever and he gave him a new name. So he's saying, remember, you're Jacob, but I've made you Israel. Remember that. 
I have made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. What is God doing? What is he teaching us here? He's saying, listen, it's not just that you worship all other things. You know, one thing you do that's so, so damaging is you even make an idol out of God when you forget who he's like. That before you, make, before you sin in any way, you first imagine God to be something less than he really is. You think that God, yeah, he's God, but he really doesn't care, or he really doesn't have power, or he really doesn't know what I need. Therefore, I'm justified in getting it myself and doing it however I can do it. So God says, listen, remember who I am. Remember, I made you. I formed you. I know you. I will not forget you. There's so many things that we do that seem reasonable if we believe that God has forgotten us. But God says, I haven't forgotten you. And then he says, I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. There's a great place in Hosea where it says, Ephraim, my people, your love for me is like the morning mist. As soon as the sun rises, it's gone. But here, he turns that image around and says, your sins are like the morning mist. Disappears. It's gone. You can't even find it. Return to me, he says, for I have redeemed you. And, you know, the the order is so important because all the false versions of Christianity say return to God. And if you do it just right with the right heart attitude, if you really, really, really meant it when you prayed that prayer, then maybe God will accept you. But the gospel, the real gospel, that order is different. Return to me because I have redeemed you. Because in the cross of Christ, I didn't just open up a way of salvation. I saved people. I lived and died in the place of people. Come to me because in Jesus, what Jesus did at the cross, your sin is dealt with completely. And then he says, sing. Sing. And that's what I think you've got to understand. Worship is vital. It's not enough that you just think about your idols and that you think about how empty and vacuous they are. It's important that you actually worship the true God. Because we're talking not just about your head, but about your heart. And so you need to take what you know about God, what you remember about God, what he's revealed about himself, and you need to sing it. You need to praise him. You need to thank him. You need to worship him. Because worship is the way that healing and restoration comes to us. Not just thinking. You aren't the way you are just because you think the wrong things or because you do the wrong things. It's because your worship is misplaced. And finally, I would say, how do we we connect this to Jesus? Listen, ultimately, we have to gaze upon Jesus and him crucified. Because all the things that God reveals about himself in this passage find their full expression in Jesus and him crucified. It's one thing for God to say to the people through Isaiah, I will not forget you. It's quite another thing for us to look back at the cross where Jesus Jesus bears your name on his chest as he dies. He's thinking about his people as he dies. It's quite another thing to say, God will not forget me. That's one thing. But to see Jesus, Jesus died on a cross thinking about what he was doing, and why he was doing it. It's one thing to say, for God to say, I have redeemed you. It's quite another thing to look at the cross and see salvation accomplished. It's one thing to say, burst into song, because God is going to bring you back from exile, as the Israelites would have understood. It's quite another thing to say, burst into song, because Jesus, the God-man, considered equality with God not something to be held on to, but he gave it up because he would rather die than live without you. And use that to do battle against your idols because which of your idols would die for you? Idols demand worship, but they, they don't forgive and they would never die for you. But Jesus died for you. Even though you give your love to others, and even though I give my love to others. I remember uh, a friend of mine, um, Glenn Hoberg, he's pastor of a church in D.C. now. I remember him when he was engaged, and he found that he was 
tempted to worship the beauty of his wife-to-be. And I remember one time him coming down to my room and we were talking about it. He says, well, you know what? I, I just have to tell myself during this engagement se- season is that her beauty is fading. It is. And God could make another just like her, even more beautiful. Now the ladies are like, ugh, I don't want my husband thinking about that. But you know what? You do. You do. Because the last thing you want is to be married to a guy who loves you because of what you look like. Right? Because I've, I've, had, I've had those conversations in premarital counseling with the girls who wonder, will you love me if I gain 100 pounds? you love me if I gain 20 pounds? Will you love me when I don't look like I do now because that day is coming? It's not a very pleasant thing to be worshipped. It will make you completely insecure. And so idolatry really matters. Really matters what we worship. It really matters where we put our heart and our trust. Let me just tell you this. On the back of this little, um, it's not on my copy, but on your copy, on the back of the scripture passage, is a really helpful little diagnostic tool. I actually use this in premarital counseling all the time. I adapted this from, from Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City. Basically just trying to get at what are my idols. Because here's the key. What you want to do is try to understand what are my idols. And then what is it that I've forgotten about what I already have in God that makes these idols seem so reasonable and plausible to me. Because that's the way you do battle. That's the way God does it here. He says, look, you're trusting in these things to give you power. But I'm the one who's protected you. I'm the one who won't forget you. What you're trying to get from your idols, you already have in me. So if you're trying to get popularity, well, yeah, because it's connected to a desire to be lifted up and praised. And you were made for that. And you're going to have it one day. Heaven is going to be a time when God is going to say to all creation, this is my girl. This is my boy. Ephesians talks about that, that he saved us so that he could demonstrate his glory to the cosmos so that he can show you off and say, this one is a trophy of my grace, right? And so you, if, you're, if popularity is, is the thing you're looking to, the way that you do battle with it is to say, I don't need this. Why do I need the, the worship of mere humans when one day God is going to show me off as a trophy of his grace, Right? And so you have, to connect, you have to sort of understand what are the idols that I tend to run to and then what is it that I've forgotten about who God is and what he's done. So, but this is what I'd love to talk to you more about over coffee because that's, that's the kind of thing that's really great to talk to or Seneva or Jacob or Brandon or talk with each other about it because this is, this is the kind of stuff we should be gossiping together and talking about together and praying for each other about. Let me pray for us now.